You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. So the Leaving Cert exam begins this morning, half past nine, English paper one. Over 60,000 students will either sit the exam, opt for accredited grades or do both. Best of luck to everyone doing it this year. Let's go live to Ballantyre Community School in County Dublin and join our reporter Killian Sherlock. Killian. Thanks Audrey. Yes, anticipation is building here at Ballantyre Community School and indeed at schools around the country. Staff have been welcoming students in already but the papers are indeed still locked away as the exams don't kick off until until just under an hour's time with English Paper 1 at half past nine. In a moment we'll be speaking to the school's deputy principal but before that our reporter Una Kelly has been speaking to Leaving Cert students in Rohini about how they've been preparing for the exams. My name is Kate Brogan and I'm a six-year student at Art School of Salle in Rohini. I feel a little bit nervous but I'm a bit more relaxed because we know that we have the accredited grades as a backup if the exam doesn't go in our favour. How did you find studying at home? Um, I found it quite hard to study at home because it wasn't the same as sitting in a classroom with your friends around. You couldn't ask for help off the teacher as easily and it was very hard to motivate yourself while staring at a computer screen all day long. I'm hoping to study Irish and maths and I want to become a secondary school teacher. I can't wait for it all to be over and to just move on and start something new in September. My name is Lisa Lucky and I'm a sixth year student at Art School of Sal Rahini. I'm feeling a little stressed and nervous and I think that is normal, you know, despite any year, like even without COVID, it's supposed to be a stressful year, but I feel a little bit calm in a sense because I have the opportunity to get predicted grades and I can actually go forth with subjects I feel as though I can excel in. What was it like trying to study at home? It was really really difficult. I have some like a lot of people in my family so you know I had to try my best to kind of go to a secluded area and try to study and it was really really difficult because a lot of it came from like um, self-motivation and kind of discipline but I think it has definitely made me a lot more resilient because I'm able to do that for myself now and you know I don't have to get someone to do it for me so I think it has developed me somewhat as a person. And those feelings of nervousness and uh, attempts to focus the mind are definitely underway here at Ballantyre Community School as students continue to arrive. I'm joined by Deputy Principal Sean McGeady, um, who's going to tell us a little bit about uh, the challenges that these students have faced um, since March of last year. Good morning. Uh, um, we have over 70 students going to sit the leaving cert this morning and at least every student would probably be going to sit one paper this year, so we'd be expecting up to 60% of students to turn up this morning for their English paper. And students have been very responsible in their decision-making throughout the year, looking at all options open to them. Um, those who were selected to sit the exams have uh, used their time wisely and sensibly to focus all their studies and efforts on the subjects and prove themselves in their written papers this morning. Um, the exams themselves are offering greater scope and choice this year and flexibility to students. And this is probably giving students more confidence in their ability to achieve better grades in their papers, in the like, particularly in the likes of English and maths, where they have more options this year in their subjects other years. And this has probably provided a bit of comfort to them um, to improve their results, possibly. Something 
Something else that will be providing them comfort is the option of accredited grades. Can you talk me through some of the decisions that students have been making when it comes to that? Well, I suppose students have been looking at um, the best possible scenario for themselves. You know, they've looked at um, when they sit the exams, the time allotted is uh, still the same, but the options have been increased a lot more in the papers, as I've mentioned. The English and the maths would be particularly dominant in that, where they have more of a scope uh, to pick up different subjects or different topics in the area. So that would give them definitely a greater emphasis or greater possibility of improving their grades. And can you tell me a bit more about um, the the school here and some of the challenges that you've faced with, with remote working? Well, it's been a very tough year for all the students and all of our students have engaged very positively with the approach during lockdown. We had a blended approach here. We had a mixture of uh, live lessons, pre-recorded lessons. Um, and there were still still difficulties, uh, but students found the balance of the live lessons um, very good. Um, we, of course, there was, student, there was issues throughout the country, and we were no different here in Ballantyre with Wi-Fi and laptop issues. But um, the d- disruption was overcome fairly well by the students, and I suppose the main thing the students would have missed would have been their peer-to-peer group and their social interactions with the students every day but they adapted very well and there's so great resolve and grit and coming through this and we're very proud of them. Deputy Principal Sean McGagey thanks for your time and best of luck to all the students here at Ballantyre Community School and of course throughout the country. Audrey. Killian, thanks a million. Killian Sherlock reporting live there from Ballantyre Community School in County Dublin. As the country slowly reopens from months of COVID-19 restrictions, many services are being made available again. Among them are driving lessons and tests. According to the Road Safety Authority, there are currently 120,000 people booked to take their driver theory test. There can also be long waits for lessons. 23-year-old Katie Reedy from Castle Island in County Kerry spoke to our reporter Fiacra Okyone about the impact of the driving lessons shutdown. So I applied for lessons back in August and I was waiting until December to get my first lesson. There was such a delay and I had two or three done before the lockdown hit. I was waiting until May then to get any more lessons in. So I've been waiting a really long time. It's a nightmare trying to like apply for jobs now because obviously I don't have transport to get there. Living out in Kerridge, you know, there's not much transport. So I've only six lessons done and I'm only being offered one lesson a week. So I'm looking at another, you know, two months um, at best. And then I'm going to have to wait another God knows how long, you know, at least a few weeks for a test. So that's a worry as well. How big an impact is that going to be for you? It's huge because like I said, I've finished my job now. It was only I was on a contracted until May. So I have to find a job for the summer and it was either find a job in my hometown um, and jobs are scarce you know it's a small town or alternatively find a work from home job which is going to be difficult because there's a few other children in the family you know it's not a very quiet household um, but I had no other option so it's huge it has a really had a huge impact on me. What would you like to see happen in addition to what's already happened? Is there a need for prioritization of certain parts of the country? Yeah, um, if they were to prioritise, yeah, rural areas, I think definitely because, you know, in bigger cities or bigger towns, there's more transport. But in Kerry, like, there's really nothing. You really are stuck. I'm in Castle Island and before, like, for years, they've had, 
lessons available from Castle Island, but then since COVID hit, they've only been offering them from Chile or Clarny. And Chile is at least a 20-minute drive for me because I'm a bit outside the town of Castle Island. And Clarny then is 30, 35 minutes. So Clarny really is a no-go. So Chile is the only option. Everyone from all the rural towns it's in Kerry, it's those two that they would have to go to. So there's a huge list. And that was Katie Reedy from County Kerry speaking to our reporter Fiacra O'Kioni. Joining us now is Brendan Morgan. He's an approved driving instructor with the Irish School of Motoring. Good morning, Brendan, and thanks for talking to us. Morning, Rachel. How busy are the phones at the moment? Are you in demand? Yeah, the phone is, is extremely busy at the moment. There is a, there's an absolutely huge demand for driving lessons, as you can imagine. Um, so, yeah, there's no shortage of business at the minute. And if somebody contacts you now, how long is the wait likely to be before they can get that lesson? Well, at the moment, we are only allowed to give lessons to um, essential drivers who are essential workers. Um, so that has put some level of kind of normality on it. That you have some level of, of order in, in the, the lessons that are being given out. But I think it's only a it's only a matter of time, and it's only right that that the people who are non-essential workers will be able to do lessons very shortly. And there's going to be you know quite a demand then when they come on board as well. It depends on their availability and on our availability. But we 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 try and accommodate them within a couple of weeks anyway if we can. But have it depends, as I say, on the availability on, on both our sides. Have there been any lessons then over the past five months? Well, when we had a, we had a brief reprieve over Christmas time, mm-hmm. about three weeks, where we were given lessons, but then we went straight into lockdown again. And the only lessons that we were allowed to give at that stage was uh, to essential workers who had a test date booked. Now, that's a very, very small you know, window of people that, that uh, we were allowed to work with. So there's been very few lessons given. We're, we're back um, up and running since the 10th of May. So we're, we're, we're given lessons at a very good rate since then. But uh, as I say, we have a long way to go and some things kind of normalise. What have the past 15 months been like for you? I mean, presumably there have been long periods where basically there's been nothing to do. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly we're, we're very restricted in what we can do. And there's been long periods where we had nothing to do at all. Yeah, so, so um, yeah, it's been, it's, it's been tough and it's been frustrating. But uh, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to come back at this stage and give the best service we can. We're supposed we're in an industry now where we're, no, nobody is pointing the finger at anybody saying that anybody is to blame. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a COVID situation that's, that's created this in, in some way. So what we, you know, it's incumbent on all of us now to get together and try and give the best service we can to the learners at this stage. And you're still talking, I suppose, about a situation where many people, many people getting into the car won't be vaccinated. Do, do you have any concerns about that? Obviously, yeah, there, we, we do have concerns. You're, you're, you're in very close quarters with somebody giving them a driving lesson. You're, you're beside them in the passenger seat of the car. Um, now, I, I have been vaccinated. I have, I've had one vaccine, vaccination. I'm waiting on my second. So I suppose a, a lot of the instructors will be of an age where they have been vaccinated now at this stage. But yes, you're dealing with people who would have been of, of a much younger age group who by and large aren't vaccinated. So it's concern, but we, we take we take COVID and sanitization, et cetera, very, very seriously. We, um, I, I, I have uh, seat covers, I can wipe up the seat covers, I sanitize the steering wheel, the gear stick, the, anything that I would have been in contact with. I also, in our school of motoring, we've been issued with a thermal thermometer. So I can take the temperature of the learner and take my own temperature as well. So that we, we can both agree together that we're in a good 
healthy temperature range to go ahead with the lesson. We also conduct the lesson with the with the windows slightly open to get good um, air exchange in the car as well. So we're we're, we're pretty proactive in in, in, um, in in COVID measures, but obviously it's a slight concern. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt. Mm. There's also likely to be a wait, presumably, before people can take a test. I mean, we were speaking about it on the programme a few weeks ago, the long, long wait that there can be at the moment for even the theory test. That's right, yeah. I mean, the, 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 I mean, I suppose for, for, for the, the theory test, um, there is some plans afoot to, to give a, a remote theory test so you'd be able to do it online. I think that they're trialling that at the moment, but it's only very much in the rollout phase now. But that would be a huge advantage um, when it does get up and running. But yeah, people to even get their first step on, on the, the driving ladder is, is difficult because they have to get the theory test done in the first place. Um, for the driving tests, I think pre-COVID, you were looking at about a waiting list of, of a waiting time of about six weeks. I think it's about now. It could be you could be talking about twenty-five weeks. God, that's extraordinary. Are there any mm. plans? Do you know to try and do something to tackle that? To, to maybe find a few extra testers for a few months. Yeah, there, there, there's forty driving testers. I understand just about to come on stream at this stage. And there, there are plans to get 40 more on stream. Um, but, I mean, even if, if, there were, if there were three times that amount, I, I can still see it being early next year before anything is done. I mean, there, there was a suggestion that um, driving instructors, ADIs, could be made temporary driving testers. We, we, we have been um, actually examined by the RSA, so we're, we're up, well up to their standards. They have, they have uh, deemed us okay to, to give driving lessons. So we will be um, very suitable to give driving tests that could make us temporary testers maybe for a while and maybe try and clear the backlog. It's a suggestion. I haven't heard uh, you know, a reason why that couldn't be done. So something that the Minister could consider. All right. Well, listen, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. That was Brendan Morgan, who's an approved driving instructor with the Irish School of Motoring. Amnesty International has accused China of committing crimes against humanity in Xinjiang province. The organisation has collected new evidence of the persecution of Muslims and says the region has become a dystopian hellscape for hundreds of thousands of Muslims subjected to mass internment and torture. Xinjiang in the northwestern region is home to the Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities. Now, before we hear from Amnesty itself, uh, we can hear the voiced and, I warn you, distressing testimony of some of the former detainees of these internment camps. This man talks about the torture of the tiger chair. The man was in our room for more than two months. He was made to sit in a tiger chair. I think the man was being punished for pushing a guard. They brought the chair into our room. They told us that if we helped him, then we would sit in the chair. It was an iron chair. His arms were cuffed and chained. His legs were chained as well. His body was tied to the back of the chair. Two cuffs were locked around his wrists and legs. A rubber thing was attached to his ribs to make the person sit up straight. He would urinate and defecate in the chair. He was in the chair for three nights and he died after he was taken out of the cell. In another testimony, let's hear this man recounting how his wife was forced to have an abortion. My wife was seven months pregnant. The law was, if you have more than two kids then you have to pay a fine. And if you can't pay, there is prison. I told them I could pay the fine. 
They said no. So they took her to hospital and did an abortion. Those testimonies voiced by colleagues in the newsroom. Now, earlier I spoke to Amnesty's senior crisis adviser, Jonathan Loeb, and he told me a little bit more about the gathering of the evidence for this report. Over the past 20 months, Amnesty has been investigating the situation in Xinjiang, both inside and outside of the internment camps. And as part of this investigation, we interviewed over 100 people, including 55 former detainees from the internment camps. Um, And these detainees gave us um, a very detailed and unfortunately tragic description of what life is like inside the camps. And each one of them describes an environment um, in which torture is endemic, um, an environment in which every moment, every aspect of their day is regimented for them. Um, They describe a ceaseless indoctrination campaign um, that is focused uh, essentially on rooting out uh, Islamic practices and Turkic Muslim ethno-cultural practices um, and replacing these with sort of state sanctions beha- sanctioned behaviours and practices. How many Uyghurs and other Muslims have been detained since, since this particular crackdown began really in 2017? Yeah, rep- reports indicate that uh, hundreds of thousands of Uyghurs, Kazakhs, and other members of predominantly Muslim ethnic minority groups have been unlawfully detained in Xinjiang since 2017. Um, and according to the government's own statistics, hundreds of thousands more have also been detained in prisons. Um, the precise numbers are unknown at this point as a result of the tremendous efforts that the government has gone to to trying to prevent the world from understanding what is going on in Xinjiang. And Jonathan, what reasons uh, does the Chinese give, government give for detaining people in the camps or in the prisons? Do they say they've committed a crime against the state or a crime against the individual? The government has provided a variety of explanations about the camps and the individuals in them uh, since 2017. Uh, initially denying the existence of the camps and subsequently referring to them as educational facilities. Um, But despite, again, what the government has said, um, the camps were not designed to educate anyone under any reasonable understanding of that term. They were designed to erase uh, people's cultural identities. Similarly, um, all of the 55 former detainees who Amnesty interviewed that were in these internment camps um, had been detained had been detained for what appears to be by all reasonable standards entirely lawful conduct. No one committed any internationally recognized criminal offense. They were detained because they had traveled abroad, because they had called someone abroad, or because their family member had traveled abroad or called someone abroad. Many were detained because they downloaded WhatsApp or Skype or some other foreign software application on their phone, and many were arrested for praying or for working in a mosque or having religious content on their phone. These are the types of reasons why people are sent to these camps. You record evidence of physical as well as psychological torture. What is the tiger chair? Yes. 
Unfortunately, torture is endemic in internment camps. Every former detainee Amnesty International interviewed was tortured or subjected to other cruel, inhumane, or degrading treatment. These are inescapable aspects of life in the internment camps. Uh, the report divides the torture that occurs in these camps into two broad categories. The first is the physical and non-physical torture that all detainees experience as a result of the cumulative effects of daily life in the camps. The second category is the physical torture that specific detainees, and Amnesty interviewed 17 or 18 former detainees who were uh, punished during interrogations and uh, as punishments. And these interrogations often take place uh, in what is known as tiger chairs. Tiger chairs are steel metal chairs where a detainee's arms and legs are, are affixed to the chair such that they are um, entirely immobilized. And uh, detainees are made oftentimes to sit in these chairs for 24 hours at a time. Uh, and often they are interrogated and otherwise physically beaten uh, while immobilized in these chairs. Do all detainees eventually get released from these camps or what does one have to do to obtain your freedom? Yeah. The process of being released from an internment camp is unfortunately not well understood, even by the detainees themselves. Um, we do know that many detainees have been released from camps. The 55 detainees we interviewed uh, spent for the most part, between nine and 18 months in one or two camps uh, before being released. Um, we do know that many people still remain arbitrarily detained inside Xinjiang. We also know that some people have been transferred from internment camps to prisons, um, and others have been transferred from internment camps to situations where they are made to do labor. And you were listening there to Amnesty Senior Crisis Advisor Jonathan Loeb. U.S. President Joe Biden meets U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson today ahead of the G7 summit. And one item that will certainly be on the agenda is Brexit. Ahead of that meeting, the London Times reports this morning an extraordinary diplomatic rebuke delivered by Washington to Downing Street last week, accusing the U.K. of inflaming tensions with Ireland and the EU over the Northern Ireland Protocol. Oliver Wright is policy editor with the Times. He's been telling Lisa Pereira what happened. Well, it appears to be a fairly extraordinary meeting. We've only got uh, the UK, uh, the UK side of it, but um, the Chargé d'Affaires in the embassy, Yael Lampert, um, appears to have demanded a meeting with Lord Frost um, to deliver something called a démarche, which is a, a sort of technical diplomatic term, which is basically translates as a reprimand. This is something that comes not from uh, her in particular, but from uh, the American administration. And uh, she went to see Lord Frost in his office in Whitehall and read out a formal démarche to him, um, expressing the administration's deep concern about the way in which uh, the UK was operating in terms of Brexit and the Northern Ireland border. And the language used in that démarche, is that something that you would normally expect between allies? No, I mean, entirely not. And you wouldn't expect one ally to issue a démarche to another. This is much more typically seen in the case of, you know, countries such as China. I guess the best way to see it is, um, you know, you hear these stories about... Um, uh, a government sort of hauling in the ambassador from another country. This is the sort of opposite of that. This is where the ambassador goes to see the government. Uh, but it's a very similar thing in diplomatic terms. 
And when did this meeting happen? Uh, this meeting happened um, last week. The, the 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 memo that we've got hold of is dated the 4th of June. It's uh, written by the uh, principal private secretary to Lord Frost, and it refers to the, the meeting having happened um, the day before that. So clearly this was a memo that was sent out around Whitehall to, to explain what had happened. And it's clear from the memo that these words came directly from Joe Biden. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the phrase is um, that uh, it says that the US was a long time uh, interested and observer in the peace process, uh, Lempert said, and would remain so, which is why she had been asked to deliver her first formal démarche, notable in itself, she suggested, and then she adds, uh, to ensure clarity of her message, she slowly and gravely read her instructions aloud. So what does this indicate then about how the meeting will go today between President Biden and Prime Minister Johnson? Um, I think it shows the the strength of feeling on the issue um, from Biden. But I think there's a nuance here. Um, I think that Biden is not particularly impressed by the way in which uh, the UK has behaved, but neither do I think he is particularly impressed by the way in which uh, the EU is behaving. I mean, there is, you know, in the depth of this... Um, quite a bit around uh, the European Union needing to make compromises on uh, on its issues as well as the Brits having to make compromises on on theirs and I think this this is an interesting line about you know making it clear to to Johnson that you know if he did for example align uh, UK SPS rules with those with the EU um, this wouldn't negatively affect the chances of a um, UK US free trade deal so there's a bit of an olive branch in there. Um, you know, it's, the fact that this come, has come out isn't isn't all bad for Downing Street, although I don't think they want it out there at all because uh, it will sort of try and make both sides, um, you know, play nicely, as it were. You don't you don't want that kind of sense that uh, behind the scenes Biden is really angry with Johnson. They both want this summit to be a success, so maybe in some ways getting this out there now will maybe make Biden um, be a little bit more cautious in what he says today. And that was Oliver Wright, policy editor with The Times, talking to Lisa Pereira. David O'Sullivan, former EU ambassador to Washington, is on the line from Brussels. And David, um, a day march, this, you know, formal reading of, of, of the statement of Washington's position last week. Uh, how big a deal is this in diplomatic circles and how big a deal from Washington? I, I think it is quite a big deal, and I, I think it shows the, the undoubted strength of feeling which we all knew President Biden and this administration would bring to the, the issue of Ireland and, 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 and the peace process. Uh, and I, I think, uh, as was being described, it is pretty unusual to see this kind of diplomatic uh, approach uh, between allies. And it, it underlines, I think, you know, the feeling also uh, in, in other European countries that there is really a question mark over whether uh, the United Kingdom is actually serious about implementing what it has signed up to in the protocol, and this is really causing quite a quite a quite a crisis. And the pressure from the United States for an SBS deal, this would be a deal on animal and, and food products uh, to avoid uh, the sausage wars that are being talked about in the British media. Uh, the US saying any SPS deal with the EU wouldn't affect the trade deal with them. How big a deal is that? 
Well, I think it's 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 an important <coughs> gesture by by the U.S. To, to say you know this would not take the trade deal off the agenda. To be very frank, I think there's little likelihood of a trade deal being concluded anytime soon anyway, because trade promotion authority, which is needed in the United States, expires this summer and doesn't look like being renewed. But I think it is a reassurance to the U.K. to say that if they were to do the sensible thing, which would actually take a lot of the the difficulties out of the implementation of the protocol and sign a Swiss-type veterinary agreement with uh, the EU, this would not uh, damage the prospects for a future trade deal. So this is a, a reassurance which was being offered to the UK by, by the US. The question is whether Number 10 will listen, because so far um, all the pleas and diplomacy from Brussels and from Dublin don't appear to have changed much. No, un- unfortunately. And I, I really think that this is a, a crunch moment uh, in, in terms of Uh, the EU trying to decide whether this British government is ever going to be serious about implementing what it what it commits to in 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 agreements Uh, and this is going to be very damaging because we're you know Brexit is 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 done but we we are going to be negotiating on many issues uh, over the next few years Uh, and if the government British government cannot be relied upon to stick to what they have committed and signed up to and ratified then this is going to make life very difficult indeed so I, I think this goes beyond even the issue of, of important though it is, of, of the Northern Ireland Protocol and, and the peace process, it's, it, it goes to the core mm. of the credibility of this, of this British government as an international negotiator. Why is the issue of checks on chilled meats, this, you know, the checks on the British sausage that has been made uh, such a big deal of in England at the moment, why does that matter so much to the EU that they're willing to have a trade dispute over it? Well, uh, th- the point is, uh, Anya, that um, the uh, import into the European Union from third countries of chilled uh, meat, mincemeat, sausages uh, is is not allowed because it is thought to be extremely difficult to be s- uh, certain of the provenance. And this is banned unless there is an agreement such as we have, for example, with uh, Switzerland, where uh, there is a commitment to, to meet the EU standards. This was a known consequence of Brexit. This is not a surprise. The British government itself notified uh, producers that they would not be able to export uh, uh, the, these products. Now, there is a solution, which is the veterinary agreement, but this is treating the United Kingdom in, 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 the, in the way it wished to be treated it. As, which is as a, as a third country, non-member of the EU. One other thing, uh, of course, that's going to feature on the agenda of the G7, and besides that, Joe Biden will also be meeting uh, NATO and the EU, but it's the issue of COVID and the vaccine gap in particular between rich and poor nations. You've got more than half the populations in the UK and the US vaccinated at this stage, for instance, and fewer than 2% in Africa. Uh, can we expect a big announcement from Joe Biden? Well, he has already, I think, announced that the United States will uh, purchase uh, for for distribution some 500 million doses. Um, The European Union has been in the lead on this for some time, uh, very supportive of the the, the COVAX initiative, has already given quite a lot of money uh, and has made clear, I think, uh, in various statements that we too want to join with the developed countries in helping the the, the less developed countries uh, get the vaccines uh, that they need, because this really is true that until everyone is safe, none of us are safe, and we do need to help the, the poorer countries uh, also put in place a vaccine programme to try and e- eliminate this virus uh, globally. And the other issue, diplomats will be watching closely US-Russia relations. 
Yes, well, I mean, this is this is a, a very important trip for, for President Biden, and it's been carefully choreographed. Uh, he goes to the, the UK and the G7 now, then he comes to NATO, then he meets with the EU, and then he meets Mr. Putin uh, in, in, in Geneva. This is clearly designed uh, to set up a situation where, as the president likes to say, America is back, cooperating with its allies, uh, Co coordinating with them and he goes uh, into his meeting with Mr. Putin with the full support of, of the of his of his Western allies uh, in those discussions and I think that will uh, put him in a much stronger position than, than might otherwise have been the case. Thank you for your time this morning David O'Sullivan there former EU ambassador to Washington. <laughs> Another member of the DUP has resigned. Roberta McNally, a member of the party in Upper Ban in County Down, has become the latest member to quit following the election of Edwin Poots as leader last month. Her decision followed the resignations of two councillors in South Down, Catherine Owen and Glyn Hanna. And Mr Hanna is on the line now. Good morning. Good morning, Audrey. And you're very welcome to the programme. You've been in the DUP a long time. Why did you decide to resign? Well, to be quite honest, I, over the last year or so, I was very, very concerned about the direction the DUP was taking. And what really brought it to a head was the last four or five weeks with the removal and the way Arling Foster was removed as DUP leader. Then after that, the way uh, the Puts camp conducted their election campaign for leader of the DUP. And following on from that, Whenever it came to the ratification meeting on the 27th of May, the behaviour of that was disgraceful. And then following on from that, the behaviour of uh, the Southtown DUP MLA, John Wells, sending out emails directing what we should do in Southtown. At the Democratic Unionist Party is supposed to be democratic. Everybody's entitled to a different view. So last weekend it came to our heads that... Uh, we had, a, we had to have an AGM for legal purposes, and at that meeting, the meeting was just support with puts, or swamp with uh, supporters of puts and wells. Fair enough, I was removed. I accept that. I was removed by one vote as the Southdown DUP chairman. We are where we are. When I reflected on it the next day, I just decided, along with nearly the biggest part of the Southdown uh, DUP Association, we all decided to resign. What has happened in the Southdown DUP Association is basically all the young people have gone with me and I don't know what they're, they're hoping to achieve. They've, they've possibly Jim Wells and his supporters have, have won a small victory, so they have, but have definitely lost the war in Southdown. Well, you have described it as a purge, and indeed in a statement yesterday, Jeffrey Donaldson, who it says you and he are, have been lifelong friends, you've known each other since you were children, he also described it as a purge, and he said that your treatment and that of, of the South Down Association was an absolute disgrace. Is it not the case, though, in politics, that the new leader, they want their own supporters in, in various positions, rather than, than someone like you who backed the opponent, Jeffrey Donaldson, in this case? Well, fair, fair enough. That is possibly the way of it. Uh, look at the leadership contest. It ended up in 1917, so it did. Glaringly ob obvious. Mm -hmm. There's a huge split in the DUP. Well, from those who wish, wish to follow Edmund Pitts to the hard right 
and those like myself that want to sit in the middle and be as appealing to as many people as possible, and be and I would be very of of, of a centrist, moderate type uh, perspective. So I would so if that's what what he wants to do. I can't do a thing about it. But just on on the meeting we had on the twenty seventh. Pretty much my daughter Diane, who had stood for the DUP in South Down here and got the largest uh, ever unionist vote since Enoch Powell was in, in South Down. Uh, <laughs> we, we reflect what a lot of people want. My daughter Diane at, the, at that meeting on the 27th did stand up and make a speech. She was disrespected at it. One lady actually from who stood up from South Belfast and said, which was a, a founding member of the DUP. Now, I don't know in the south of Ireland where you'll understand this remark, but she turned around and she said she didn't really know what that girl was talking about. That was my daughter, Diane. Mm. I think wasn't even dry in her rent book. So, you know, how disrespectful. And that was very, very mild compared to some of the remarks that were made to, about, okay. uh, about my daughter. So, but even at that, at a personal level, above and beyond that, we have to be all-inclusive. I don't yeah. believe I'm, I'm going to be included in anything, so I don't. And uh, I do believe we, those from South Down, all the executive members were, have been removed. All the officers that supported Arling Foster and Jeffrey Donaldson have been removed. Okay, so, well, let's let's hear from Edwin Poots, uh, Mr. Hanna, because uh, you mentioned your daughter there and she, she resigned as well. Um, Edwin Poots, he's been discussing these departures as part of a, a BBC Spotlight programme, which is going to be broadcast tonight. Let's hear what he has to say. I think it is um, peripheral, but nonetheless, I don't want to lose anybody from the party. And uh, therefore, I will be uh, continuing to reach out to people uh, to seek to ensure that uh, we keep as many people as possible and to bring new people into the party. And Geoffrey Donaldson in his statement says that he fears that if Edwin Poots fails to quickly get a grip of this situation, then many others may also conclude that the DUP is no longer capable of being a broad church and providing a home for the type of unionism that we espouse. Do you worry that a split is looming in the party? <laughs> well, I'm not worrying that, that there's going to be a split in the party. There is a split in the party, so there is. You know, it's a matter of Edmund and them there that keep harping on this, that it's not there. It is there. And I know Roberta McNally, at that meeting on the 27th, Roberta was sitting in the row in front of me uh, in, 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 in the room, and I tell you, she, sat, she was sitting holding her head, so she was. Uh, long-standing members like Roberta, hard-working members like Roberta, to be quite honest with you, you can't afford lost them in any political party, so you couldn't. So I don't know where Edmund's coming from. And he calls me peripheral. I think that's not the word he used. Yeah. Uh, put it this way. I became chairman of the South Down Association, which was in a very, very poor state about five, maybe even six years ago. We, we along with me, myself, uh, Diane, Richard McKee, a number of others all sat down and we rebuilt the party, so we did. We rebuilt it to a stage, so we did, that we have had two uh, massive elections. And the last council election, so we did there, I topped the polls, so I did, I quadrupled what the previous outgoing uh, DUP councillor had done, we got to a stage, so we did there, where we were in a very, very, very good position. Now what has happened is Mr Wells and his supporters have taken, taken, the, taken them back at least 10, 15 years that they have, and I honestly think Mr Wells will get a massive shock if, if he's allowed to stand for the DUP in South Down.
Okay. He'll be slaughtered. I believe he'll be slaughtered. Well, we shall wait and see. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Glyn Hanna, former member of the DUP, former councillor for the DUP, now sitting as an independent. Uh, thank you very much indeed. It's- The High Court in Belfast has cleared the way for a judicial review of the Northern Ireland Executive's continued failure to implement an Irish language strategy. An Irish language strategy was agreed as part of the St Andrews deal back in 2006. In 2017, a court ruled the executive had failed in its legal duty to adopt the strategy. A commitment was also included in the 2020 New Decade New Approach deal. Kruhuru Moody is Advocacy Manager with Conrad Nagelga. Kruhuru, good morning. Good morning, Mary. I wonder why now? Why do you feel the need to to go back to the High Court to uh, renew judicial review proceedings at this time? You have the commitment uh, from 2020 in the New Decade New Approach document. Yeah, no, no, Mary, I think it's pretty important to, to, to mention that the context of this is that over 15 years ago, the commitment was made in St Andrews. And then in 2020, following the New Decade New Approach, there was a recommitment to, to, the, to develop a comprehensive timeline within three months, and then to adopt an Irish language strategy within six months. Now, that has surpassed that, and those commitments are still outstanding at the moment. However, we are seeing progression on other policies. And to be honest, court is our last resort. We have sought assurances. We have met with officials in many of the executive departments and ministers. And we believe now that this is being held up politically and blocked within the executive office. So we we, we did we, we sought we sent a pre-action protocol letter um, to the executive office. We they had a twentieth day days to respond to us, which is a, a statutory duty to respond, and they're at currently haven't responded. So we now have sought leave, and the High Court has granted leave, and we are. Assumed to be going to, to court on in September mm-hmm. 2021. It is, it is worth mentioning that Mr. Justice Schofield decided that the case for the executive um, in relation to the current strategy comfortably submits the threshold for leave. And this is four years after our previous previous High Court ruling on the executive failure to implement an Irish language strategy. So, from your point of view and your strategy, is this about uh, piling on the pressure or keeping the pressure going? Because you have a commitment, haven't you, from from Edwin Poots, the new DUP leader, who's saying uh, that he has pledged to to legislate and fulfil commitments under uh, the new decade, new approach, including commitments to the Irish language. And you have Michelle O'Neill talking about um, looking for commitments uh, when, you know, there will be talks about re-engaging now for the election of First and Deputy First Minister with the uh, incoming uh, nominee, Paul Given. So uh, do you need to have the court issue uh, at this stage? There are other pressures being brought to bear. Well, I think it's important that last year the institutions were re-established on the basis of the implementation of the new decade new approach. And all parties, including the DUP, signed up to that. And all its parts, including both the British government and Irish government, now, the Irish language community, and, and I would imagine the general public, fully expect all parties to implement that agreement. Now, we're 500 days on from the from, from the signing of the, the, the new decade, new approach, and we're yet to see any serious movement on any of the core components of the legislation or the Irish language strategy. And to be honest, what we're actually experiencing is that the executive office, where the DUP minister sits and has the authorise, is that it isn't being progressed. And it's important to mention that the preparatory work around the strategy has undertaken. It sits with the Department of Communities and it has to be agreed by the executive. So it hasn't featured 
on the executive uh, agenda. And the only reason for that is because of political frustration and political blockage. Right. So you're right. We do not want to go to court. We wish we couldn't go to court. And there is a solution to this. There is an executive meeting today. There is an executive meeting next Thursday where they could agree to the tame people for an Irish language strategy. And you're right, there is also a solution to the current crisis in terms of Irish language implementation of the legislation, is that those, the preparatory work and the legislation has been published for over 500 days. Okay. So there's no reason for the delay and there's no reason for excuses. So the time is nigh to the implementation of that legislation and the commitments made in New Decade New Approach. Krahur, thank you for joining us this morning. Krahur Moody, their Advocacy Manager with Conrad Aguilga. The Amazon founder Jeff Bezos has said he'll fly to space with his brother on the first human flight launched by his space company Blue Origin. Bezos, one of the world's richest men, said it was something he had always wanted to do. Space commentator Leo Enright is on the line. Leo, is this a very, very rich man indulging his dreams or is there a greater purpose to this flight? Well, all of the billionaires, Rachel, and there are several of them involved in this business of space now, uh, maintain that they have a grand vision of humans living and working in space routinely. Uh, and that's certainly been the dream of many space pioneers in the past. Uh, but the immediate opportunities here are for the very, very rich, I'm afraid. Where will the Bezos brothers be going then and how? Well, they won't be going very far. Um, they will simply be going up and down, rather like in a, in a, in a, an, a lift in a building, um, only they'll be going to what they call the Van Karman line, a hundred kilometres above the earth. Um, the whole flight will take just 10 minutes from start to finish. Uh, and the only requirement they have for the uh, people flying in this spaceship, you don't have to be Superman or Superwoman. The only requirement is that you're able to climb 90 steps of stairs uh, and not need to go to the bathroom for 90 minutes. And on this 10-minute flight, I mean, what will they be able to see? What will they be able to do? Well, I'll be honest with you, Rachel. I do think there is some, there's a special offer, as it were, uh, with this Bezos spacecraft. It's not the only one, as we know. Uh, Richard Branson is, is, is flogging uh, an entirely different system. But, but what is really unique about Blue Origin's uh, offering is the size of the windows. Up to six people can sit inside this capsule, uh, and the windows really are extraordinarily large much bigger than aircraft windows. Uh, we've seen uh, they've, they've flown uh, more than a dozen times without people uh, and each one has been broadcast live by the company in fairness to them uh, and the views really have been extraordinary through these huge panoramic windows. You mentioned the fact that there are other billionaires who want to go to space. Is there a bit of one-upmanship here among billionaires? Yeah, you do have to wonder, Rachel. Um, Bezos made this announcement. He's under a lot of pressure. Uh, he set up this company way back in the year 2000, um, which seems like an awful long time ago now. Uh, and his, his, his mission, ultimately, is to make money out of this. But he hasn't made a cent yet. Um, he hasn't successfully launched his bigger rocket, with which he hopes uh, to get government contracts. Uh, and 
while all of this has been slowly progressing at Jeff Bezos's own pace, um, the other guy on the block, um, that is Richard, uh, uh, sorry, the uh, Elon Musk, the billionaire who invented PayPal. Elon Musk has already won huge NASA contracts to send men and women into space, to send cargo into space, and just now he's been given a contract to land humans back on the moon. So Bezos is in a hurry to catch up. Thank you very much, Leo. Space commentator Leo Enright there. Around 1,000 of them lie in unmarked graves in a cemetery in Leadville in Colorado, thousands of miles away from where many of them were born and raised in southwest Ireland. They fled the famine here and travelled to America in search of a better life. But like so many others, that dream did not come true and they ended up working and dying long before their time. Now a project is underway to identify those in the graves, to tell their stories and to memorialise them with grant help from the Department of foreign affairs. I've been hearing more from the president of the Irish Network Group in Colorado, Alan Grork. A lot of the credit has to go to Professor Jim Walsh, who did a lot of research on this over 20 years ago as part of his doctorate. And um, as he was looking at the Leadville Irish, because we knew there was a lot of Irish who had come to Leadville as miners, and they came from the Bear Peninsula in West Cork predominantly, as well as some from the East Coast in the Pennsylvania mines. But as part of his research, he came across the cemetery there in Leadville, Evergreen Cemetery, and there was rows and rows of unmarked graves. And uh, a forest now has grown up around those graves. And Jim and his students over the last, over the last five years particularly, they were able to find records on over 1,300 people buried in those graves and that 70% of them were Irish. And the average age they have found when their research was 23 years old and half of them were children. And so, you know, this brought to attention to the Irish community here that, you know, there was a struggle going on out there and what what went wrong, you know, or what what happened here. So um, about five years ago, we held a commemoration at the site, and that's when it first came to my attention as part of, I'm president of Irish Network Colorado. And so we, at the commemoration, we had the Irish consulate from Austin there and a number of other uh, dignitaries. Um, and this is just a surreal and somber place. Um, there was a woman there that day from Denver who sat in a chair with just a guitar, and she sang a beautiful rendition of Isle of Hope, Isle of Tears. Just to be there, to hear this with no other sound other than the breeze going through the trees, it just gave you chills. And you couldn't help but think of all those souls who perished there 140 years ago, because this was the late 19th century. They were finally being heard or recognised. And Alan, you paint a very evocative picture there of what took place at that cemetery. And these are unmarked graves. There, there's no headstone. There's just a few wooden markers. And imagining these people and their journey from Ireland over 140 years ago, there was a silver boom, wasn't there, taking place in the United States. So what would working the mines have been like back then? You probably have to picture where this all happened. This was in the city of Leadville, which is located high up in the Rocky Mountains. It's about two hours drive from Denver. So, you know, we here in Denver, we know it as the Mile High City, but Leadville is twice that elevation at 10,000 feet above sea level. That's, that's three times Carantool. 
and it was called Cloud City back then. So yeah, in the late 19th century, there was a silver boom there. And in 1880, actually, out of a population of 30,000 people living in Leadville, 3,000 of them were Irish-born. So it was the largest Irish community in the western United States outside of California. But the working conditions, I mean, the Irish, um, they occupied the bottom rung of the ladder in, 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 in Leadville. And, you know, they came over, like what we have found that uh, the mines in Alahis in, in the Beira Peninsula, they were struggling and were shutting down at, just after the famine. And so they all came, I suppose, once a few people trickled, a lot more came to, to Leadville. But the conditions were very harsh. I think in the mines, in the bottom of the mines, it was up to 130 degrees Fahrenheit and above ground in the wintertime, minus 20. So they say that a lot of the uh, reasons behind how many children died such so young was due to scarlet fever and typhoid, which were also happening at the time. And it's also said that people were being buried at night, so the rest of the population didn't know what was going on. You know, it was a wild west town. And presumably, Alan, many of these people, would they still have descendants here in Ireland? Yeah, they would. I mean, so even from uh, Professor Walsh's research, uh, we he has found that, the na- and he says it himself, the names of Harrington and Sullivan McCarthy were as common in Leadville as they were in their native Cork. So, you know, we have, uh, actually, that's an interesting side to this, that there's a twinning in the works between the city of Leadville and Alahis in the, on the Beira Peninsula. There is a, the Copper Mining Museum and Alahis is run by Tygo Sullivan. Our plan from our end, you know, we have numbers and we have names, but we want to put stories with those. And we want to, like Tyg himself would say that he can, when he gives the tour in Alahis, he can tell the story of what happened to those miners until they got to Cove to get on the boat um, or Queenstown as it would have been. And we're trying to continue that story here. So we have reached out to them to see, can we make connections to, because people connect with stories rather than just names or stats. Because to be forgotten is to die twice, isn't that the saying? And these people certainly have been forgotten, but you are now giving them a voice once again. Yeah, I mean, we feel that like these are a forgotten Irish people. There's many, you know, people hear about the Irish Americans who succeeded but these Irish people came to America, came to Colorado, came to Leadville in search of a better life, uh, but were exposed to just a harsh existence, really. And they died trying to find an American dream, you know, and it, it was a dead end of uh, a life to come from a, um, out of the, the children of the famine to come over here. And, and this is the, what happened. So we don't want to forget that. And so if I'm given the opportunity to honour honor these people and really um, the essence is to name the unnamed. And that was the president of the Irish Network in Colorado, Alan Grorkin. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.